I'll just read. This is Romans, the first chapter. Romans 1. And this is for us in, in uh, verse 16 and 17. And this is for us, for us that are in Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's why he has to break our vessel. Because there's areas where we will, where the, because we fail, and we all do, he doesn't know us after our failures, thank God. And that's why, you know, for the treasure to flow out in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he has to deal with 2 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, those things that are, are of a shame. And those are the things that keep, keep us from allowing him experientially to break our vessel so the treasure flows out. And it's for us, but as it's going out, it's for, it's for others, for his glory. And so the enemy does everything he can. But this is what it is for us. And this is for it says, when it says, when I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Okay. This is 2 Timothy 1, 12 and 13. To keep the shame out, he's got to form Christ in us. In 2 Timothy 1 and verse 13. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. And literally, who is the power of God? In 1 Peter 1.5 and 1 Corinthians 1.24, it's Christ. And God has not given us the spirit of fear in 2 Timothy 1.7, which has to do with a lot of shame, but of power and of love. See that? <laughs> and it doesn't flow, love doesn't flow until the vessel's broken. And that's the submission of our will personally. Then the love flows. This even goes into Ephesians 4, 8 to 11 to 16. The flow of the gifts has to be united to Christ. The man has to be united to Christ. Then he becomes the gift that Christ can flow through, even in terms of apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors and teachers. And then that's shared in, in Ephesians 4, 12. And then it goes down right through uh, speaking the truth in love. In, in 4.15, then it flows into all of us. The same that's flowing in me flows into them. And they become joints that supply. So I am not ashamed of the gospel, of, uh, uh, the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is continual. This is continual deliverance. To the Jew first, this is why, again, God brings in this teaching to us. I don't know how good he just does it. This is why the church the church, that work of God that Jesus said in, in Matthew 16, 18, I will future build my church. Of course, that had to happen when he dealt with the sins, send the Holy Spirit down, and then when he did, that's Acts, the second chapter. And who was it that first heard that and formed the church? It was Jews. It's right here. It says, to the Jews first. Right? And also to the Greek, all other nations, really the Gentiles, the Greeks. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, here's what it said, from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man, the just, the ones who are righteous, will live by faith. Now, this is where God putting it on your heart, Mike, and the lost and Juddy L's heart, and then when he was doing it with the word with me this morning, here it is. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all un, ungodliness. Look, look at this. Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Look at it says, and this is uh, 
you know, this is a, a new American standard and there's all kinds of different translations, but they say who hold the truth, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Think about that. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What's that mean? Well, that means that in, in that means that this, and we're going to see it here, how he's done that by giving, even, even when man fell, when Adam and Eve fell, he didn't take away free will. And part of the will in the five parts of the soul is the conscience. And in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, even those that have never heard the God, they know. They can know, and it show, it's going to show it here, too, by creation in Psalm 19, 1-6, that will lead them to the truth in verses 7-14, to 14, and do away with all presumption, meaning all excuses and all lies. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that, listen what it says, because that which is known about God is evident within them. This is John 1, 9. He's the light that lights every man in the world. And it's not the friends. It's not Quakerism. There was still some kind of light in, in the Edemic life when Adam or any of us failed. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says he's the light that lights every man that comes into the world. That's what that's teaching here. And he did it by creation too. It's his signature. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Oh my God. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. This is creation. Being understood through what has been made, <laughs> so that they are without excuse. Who is God's answer that does away with all excuses? That's John 15, 22. It's Christ. He, he who created the worlds in Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. Who created them all, framed them in Hebrews 11, 3. Is their savior. Is their, is their substitute, potentially. His eternal power and nature have been clearly seen, being understood uh, through what has been made, so they are without excuse. For even when they knew God, think about that. Look, and this is putting it in a proper perspective. Not that we lose a heart and weeping and praying for them. No. No. But look, look. being understood. So even though they knew God, they did not. They chose not to honor him. They chose not to glorify him. That's what he's, I, I'm not saying that about everyone. Of course, when you, before you reach the age of accountability, what happens to all the kids and all this? Well, they're instantly in his presence. That's crystal clear. They're not saved in the sense of operating with their will, but it's still part of God's will if they haven't reached that, and he knows who would and who wouldn't. If they're safe and in his presence. But everyone that does know reaches the age of accountability, they know it. 
this Bible's making it clear. Even though they knew God, they did not honor him, glorify him as God, or hear or give thanks. You look at the dangerous times that we live in right now, the most hard, dangerous times literally in our country we've ever seen. And then you can see in Second Timothy 3, in those first 13 verses, you see right in there about a list of category of how individuals function in their outright rejection of God. You see, even the Jews in John 1.11, when he came unto his own, it's not that they did not recognize that he came from God from them. They did and rejected him. That's what it says. It's not really, a, a, oh, they received him not. No, that's not what the original says. No, it says they outright rejected him. They did. Multitudes do it today. It's, it's, it's crazy to think about it. And this is what breaks this is what breaks our heart. But we, but God wants our, our hearts, our vessels to be broken. But understanding it like he does. Neither did they honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile, vain, empty in their speculations, their imaginations, you know, those strongholds in 2 Corinthians 10.4 that need to be cast down, those imaginations, all those reasonings from the enemy their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, notice, no confession, no savior, 1 John 1, 9, they became fools. They became self-interpreters. God help us. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. Notice that? An image. In the form of corruptible man, and then of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Why does it say that? You reduce yourself down to this. Therefore, God gave them. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God. Notice this. They knew it. They exchanged the truth of God. They exchanged it. For what? For a lie. And worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their woman exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Lesbianism. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent, shameful acts, knowing it and still dismissing the shame. And receiving in their own persons, in themselves, the due penalty for their error. And just as they did not see fit, notice this, to acknowledge God any longer. They weren't going to do it. When would they do it? Would they do it in hell? And after a while, without a, a Savior and, a, and, and having salvation, would they still, would they be changed? And God would let them out with universalism? 
Never. They're they're unchangeable. They're unchangeable because they because there's not the proper exchange. Like some teach the exchange life. The exchange life is is we receive Christ. Not like some teach, you no longer have the flesh, because then you have to eliminate Romans the seventh chapter. And in between that is all about believers, by the way, not not non-believers. It's about believers, those that are in Christ. Because then you see it leads right to the eighth chapter from the seventh chapter. It's just dealing with these areas and issues of shame and guilt experientially. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. King James called it not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Notice that. You know how we, we, we categorize sin? You know, like lesbianism and homosexuality. I mean, that's really bad. Yeah, I know. And on an equal plane is gossip. Oh, God. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful. Notice this, inventors of evil. I don't know, are we seeing that in the world today? Inventors of evil. Look at this one. Disobedient to parents. Well, because the kids were never parented. Because the parents themselves rejected God. God forbid we should in any area. Any area. And, and, and he'll, he'll lovingly show us too, obviously. Disobedient to parents. Without understanding. Untrustworthy. Notice how this is. Without understanding. In other words, they... All this is revealing is those that don't have Christ. Without understanding, untrustworthy, and as a result, unloving and unmerciful. No mercy. And although they know, they know the ordinance, they know the truth of God, that they who practice such things are worthy of death. Think about this. They know. It's known in them that what you do, you continue to do, you know it's worthy of death. And I'm going to tell you, this is what they know. Because the Bible brings it out. Not annihilationism, not being extinct, but living separated from God forever. They know that in measure. They do. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those that practice them. And this is what I got this morning from this. There's two ways. There's only two ways to know God. In Christ or in hell and in the lake of fire. And both have to do with eternity. Can you imagine? And this is what will break our hearts. Can you imagine they have to face him at the Bema seat, at the great white throne, not the Bema seat. In, sec, sec, and in uh, Revelations 20, 11 to 15, they have to stand before him and see visibly his, the marks, but visibly that love being that, that he had toward them. Huh? 
and that for all eternity, they have to know it that way. Can you imagine that? That's what the Bible says in Isaiah 66 and verse 24, in Mark 9, 44, 46, and 48, where it says the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Now this, this would break our heart. Because here's the difference. Knowing God with a clean conscience in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2 versus in a pure conscience in Titus 1, verse 15, the A part, or a defiled conscience, but still knowing that God loved you that way, but you don't experience it. You don't experience the fire of it, the purity of it. You don't experience it. That's the greatest pain in hell. Their, their conscience. What will it do? Will, what will the conscience do? What does our conscience do experientially when we don't realize and don't submit to him? What does the enemy do? What does he do with us? He constantly accuses us and condemns us and makes us feel guilty and shameful. That's what they're going to experience forever. Forever and ever. But then, in Isaiah 14, uh, 7, 8, down through 17, 18, 19, they're going to narrowly look at him. God. And they're going to say, you're the one? You know? But obviously, obviously, they had a will that wasn't submitted. So, there's, and God brought it up with me this morning, there's two ways, to, there's only two ways to know him. Because he made this clear to me, he will be known. He will be known. In other words, and how? His great love, which was the cross, the height of evil. You want to talk about in the fullness of time. Galatians 4, 4 talks about that. Well, well, why did God do things like this? Why, you know, why were we born where we're born and they were and all? Because God considered that the full summation of time in all of it. It's still going to go on, but the full summation of it in God's mind was the cross, the height of evil. The height of evil. The height of it. And you know, and you know who it was? You know who is his greatest, most hateful enemy? You know, more people have been killed on planet Earth by so-called religious wars than any other war you could even imagine. And it was the religious crowd that cried out in John 18, 40, not this man. Nope. And God forbid the flesh in us that we're not of is not going to make any different profession unless we have a proper confession. Thank God we have it in 1 John 1, 9. They're going to say, they said, not this man, because when they were saying, not this man, what were they saying? And Jesus even said it about him in John 7, verse 1, and John 7, verse 7. They sought to kill him. And the word kill him is the Hebrew word, watsak. And that's why some people think, well, you know, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 23 to 17, it says, thou shalt not kill. It never says that. It says, you shall not murder. They cried out, murder him. Oh, my God. And they live with that. 
That's the worm that doesn't die. That's the conscience. That's exactly, do you want to know what the worm is in Scripture? That's what it is. It's the conscience. Because we know, we know this based upon the, this particular bunch of different Scriptures, but this alone. And God is making this clear. This goes with, with Psalm 19, 1 through 6. This is what it's. This is what is he's teaching right here, and for us to know it this way, and of course to go after them. But this is, this is uh, Romans two fourteen and fifteen. For the for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their minds and emotions. Right their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately. This is a great translation. You don't get this in the King James, but this is, this is good. Their thoughts alternating, accusing, or else defending them. Oh, my God. That's the conscience. And ours is cleansed. We have a cleansed conscience. And by that, having a cleansed conscience, we don't have excuses. Jesus did away with them. And now I can know him in the purity of who he is revealed through his son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And even this goes into our own intimate fellowship with him for all eternity. In Revelations 2, in verse 17, that's the white stone. One of the, the booklets I want to bring and, and show it so we can have help in because I got all the all the, the notes and things on on that, but that's the thought that God gave me this morning. That the privilege that we have to know Him, the privilege that we have to be in Christ, and what did Christ? And the Bible brings these things out. Look, they're even brought out, and God was bringing out so much more, but. He usually does a in John seventeen. He's bringing out, he's bringing out the fullness of Christ. He's bringing out here the Son of Man and the Son of God, those two natures united in one, and it's his, part of his prayer. And it, and he's the result of that prayer that he gives the glory to God. It's unbelievable. Well, this is his prayer. This is John 17, verse 22. And this is the result of a cleansed conscience. This is John 17, 22, where he says, The glory you have given me, I have given to them. That's the Son of Man, the head of a whole new race. He's given that to us. That's Colossians 1, 27. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's speaking about his impeccable humanity, which was never separated from, from his deity as the Son of God. And you get into all this other Gnostic teaching that Paul battled in, 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 in the uh, Epistle to Galatians, of which he had to write with his own hand, which he did. Aren't we thankful that God still had him do that? And, and he says, again, in John 17, 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me, 
that they may be perfected, completed in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them still. Can you imagine? And like we said, through us, broken, loving them. God still loving them through us. Amazing. But through a broken vessel. I submitted will. So that the world may know you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Now here's, here's, we just read in 1722, the Son of Man. Now here's the Son of God. Here's what else we're going to see. Father, in verse 24 of John 17, I desire they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you love me before the foundations of the world. You know what he's saying here? He's talking about eternal begottenness. Let's figure that one out. I just humbled myself. And God breaking my vessel with that. We're going to see. He's God. But, but eternally, how do we understand? Because the Bible says so in John 1.18. He is forever and as long as God has always been, the Father eternally begot the Son. And the Holy Spirit proceeded from both. And we're going to see that too. And he, how? How am I going to see his eter this eternity that he's talking about in John 1, 1 and 2? How? He's given us eternal life. In John 17, 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 1 John 5, 11. And all of these things, everything that he's given us through the scriptures for now is to do one thing for us. What is it to do? It's to break our vessel. To break our vessel. And inwardly, we just worship him. Inwardly, he's our, he's our all. Inwardly, he's everything to us. And nothing, in one sense, nothing else even matters. But him. And those that he loves. Him loving me. And those that he, through me, is loving. That is it. So we're growing in him. Up in him. In Ephesians 4 and verse 15, to be a supply, do you see? And 4.16, but he's got to break the vessel. That's Psalm 51.17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. God does not, God thinks so highly of those things because it's his son and what he's accomplished. Because in giving his son, my God, he gave up. How do we understand these things? I mean, he gave us his son the eternally begotten one that he gave for himself <laughs> and the Son for himself and the Father for himself and the Holy Spirit proceeding from both united. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's amazing. It's totally incredible. You want to talk about opportunity in the midst of evil. In the midst of evil, is what you were saying, in the midst of evil and darkness. Men loving darkness rather than light. That's Listen, that's Romans 1, 18 to 32. Those are the ones, and he loves them with this brokenness. With brokenness, he loves them. But they're in John 3, 18 to 22. That's what they are. Men love darkness rather than light. It's not that they didn't know the light. 
Look at if it says light, listen, that's a savior. That's a substitute. It is the only means of reconciliation. And then what do they say? Either yes or no. Period. So how are we going to know him? You know, that's what Paul was saying. And he kept saying it too. Again, chained to a Roman guard, approximately 67 years of age at least, when he met Christ approximately on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, 1 through 6, approximately 35 years old. Approximately 32 years later, he's still making the same confession. I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. What is that? Murder him. I don't want this man. Get rid of him. Get him out. I don't want him in my thoughts. Get him out. I don't want him. That's what he was saying in, in Philippians 3.9. I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. That's why he counted it all dung. Philippians 3.8, because it was all dung. No matter what it was. Then he said, I want to know him in 3.10. I want to know him. I want to know him. In the power of his resurrection, yes, 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 Edwin, and in the fellowship of his suffering where you are and that's where God met him and that's where he meets us and it's such an opportunity for us the things, the darkest circumstances and situations that we thought were so against us were not only for his glory and for our blessing but for the blessing of multitudes that was his, I believe that I believe that for everyone. I believe that for everyone. I do. That was his Jacob moment. When God would show him, you're no longer. And show me and all of us. You're no longer the supplanter, Jacob. You're no longer the con man. You're no longer living in excuses and lies. No longer. No. No. Your name is Israel. Prince. Prince. Because now you have a king who rules and reigns over you. And now you're a prince. And he's taken you in 1 Samuel 2, verse 8, taken you from the dung hell and set you with princes. Set you with princes. And that's why David, in Ezekiel 34, and verse 24, and down through, he's going to rule in millennial reign on the earth as prince. King Jesus, yes, king, he's king. Yeah, Revelation 17, 13, Revelations 19 and verse 16, king of king and lord of lords, oh yes. He'll rule as prince. But yet you and I, married to him, will rule and reign over the nation of Israel as they rule over all nations. And this is, all this is coming to a head. And we're watching it. And of course God's going to break. He has to break our vessel. Would we do it? Would we break our own vessel? We never would. Never would. So the treasure flows out. Boy, to be able to, to hear that testimony of Edwin. To hear your testimony, Mike, of what, you know, God bringing you there. Yeah, beautiful and all this. And how many times did God have to bring us there till we finally arrived at this point? You know, really, why are we there? What is the purpose for us being there? What was the whole purpose? What was the greatest purpose? 
to know our Creator, to know our precious Savior. Yes, enjoy it, but can you do one without the other? Never. And that's where the enemy will only use the things of the world to keep us living in shame, those that are Christ. So terrible. But yet, that's why he has to break our vessel. Knowing him. Just think, just think how we can know him continually. And how we will in Ephesians 3 and verse 19. To know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Yet that same knowledge is the worm that dies not that passes them forever in eternity in hell. And then ultimately the lake of fire. That's how they're going to know him. Oh, God help us. That doesn't break your heart for the lost. Boy, I'll tell you. And, and, and seriously, for any of us, this will give us proper definition. When another believer lives in sin or even against us, how should we know that? With brokenness and to restore them. That's Galatians 6, 1 to 4. Not to accuse them. Not that they are your enemy. Not that you compare yourself. Oh, in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. God forbid, you know. Oh, well. That was the thoughts he gave me this morning with all of this and, and unbelievable brokenness was there's only two ways to know him because he will be known. He's going to be known. And, he, and, and even now we have the privilege to grow in that. You know, knowing him. And John eight thirty two, you will know the truth. When will we ever stop knowing the truth of his love? Think about that. In our own personal way, in Revelation 2.17, John 8.32, Ephesians 3.19, to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge, that passes knowledge. And to see that, you imagine being there? Having that shared glory exchange life with him, because that's John 17.22 individually in Revelations 2 and verse 17, personally with him, but then all of us looking at him. I, 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 I can't even imagine, because that's 1724. Oh, my God. We're going to learn things. I don't know. Right now, I don't know. He's eternally begotten. Yeah, that's what the Bible says. That's what God says. The Son was eternally begotten, and yet never a time they were ever not. <laughs> Let's figure that out. If that doesn't humble us. <laughs> oh boy, I tell you. No wonder truly, when you truly do get to know him experientially, you know that you don't know anything until he reveals it to you. And you know it for a fact. And then that, that true knowing experience is never used as a prideful thing to compare yourself with someone else. Never. Never that. Never that. Okay. We'll stop.